Okay, everyone. We are continuing um, talking about Jesus and the kingdom. And I wanted to start off with a little trivia. So if you're not in the classroom, I don't know that this will be as fun. But you just have to... Mark, what's after Mark? Uh, Luke, yes, that's, right. that's the tr- that's the trivia. No, <laughs> and what's oh yeah, can't forget about Johannine theology. So uh, we talked about specifically this phrase last week. We talked about the kingdom of God, and we mentioned how, kind of to our surprise, if you look at the Old Testament, the phrase "the kingdom of God." is not used in the Old Testament. Uh, Chris Matthews couldn't believe it. <laughs> uh, so question. Among the synoptic Gospels and then uh, John, what are the synoptics? Matthew, Mark, Luke. What does synoptic mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're similar. They're synchronized. They work together, right? And then... And then John gets kind of booted out of the fellowship of the synoptics. You know what I mean? He's given the left foot of fellowship because he's not quite like the synoptics. And so they kind of put him in his own special little category. So here's a question for you guys. Among the synoptics and then John, who uses the phrase the kingdom of God the most? Do I hear a Matthew? Do I hear a John? <laughs> Okay. Matthew uses the phrase four times. Uh, John uses the phrase four times. <laughs> Stop the madness. Mark uses the phrase 16 times. Luke uses the phrase 32 times. Come on, you looking people. Come on. You guys didn't give Luke any love. You guys underestimated him. What's the biggest surprise? To me, the biggest surprise was Matthew. How does Matthew not use the word kingdom of God, right? That's because Matthew uses an equivalent, not the kingdom of God, the, oh boy, kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's the exact phrase that he uses, and he uses that phrase 32 times. So it's not that Matthew's not a kingdom guy. It's that. So here's, a que- here's the bigger question. This only introduces another question. Yes, sir, don't steal my thunder. What's your question? I, I, I doubt if I will. So does that mean, since he used it 36 times? Well, No. I'm saying kingdom of God four times, kingdom of heaven 32 times. If you combine the two phrases, right. then sure, he uses it 30. What is that, Mass? <laughs> I'm here. Oh, so is Josh. Hi, Josh. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so here's a, here's a real question. Why is Matthew using the term heaven and not God? Right? Anybody? Did he meet? Okay, the more and more I study the Bible, I don't know about you guys, but the more and more I study the Bible, the more and more I kind of come to the conclusion that there's nothing's by accident in the Bible. You know what I mean? Just when I kind of start underestimating the authors of Scripture, it's like, 
Oh, they really had a purpose in doing that. You know what I mean? Anybody? Any guess? Why does Matthew use kingdom of heaven and not kingdom of God? Yes, ma'am. Ooh, you're not wrong. Yeah, you're not far off either. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, that's that's a good idea. So for you, that what comes to mind is that uh, Matthew is emphasizing some sort of heavenly, and we used this word last week, remember, some sort of heavenly intrusion, right? Which heaven is representative of the age to come, right? Like Jesus says, you know, like in the age to come, there's neither people are not married or given in marriage, right? So the age to come definitely goes back to the heavenly realms, you know, to the, the future, to heavenly state. And so Matthew emphasizing the kingdom of heaven is definitely trying to bring some sort of heavenly reality, right? Uh, but in doing that, what, what automatically happens when he emphasizes a heavenly reality? Anybody think of anything else? Anybody? Less emphasis that it's here with us. Yeah, so immediately we enter into some sort of what we could call heaven, uh, earth, dualism, right? So there's like a heaven-earth dualism going on in the, in, the, in the gospel of Matthew. And really this has all sorts of different characteristics to it. There are eschatological characteristics to it. There's ethical characteristics to it. Like maybe one key passage that I can think of is Matthew chapter 6, verse 29, and, or verse 19 and following, where Jesus tells us, Do not store your treasures on earth, where moth and rust and thief, right? But store your treasures in heaven so right there he's showing us the supremacy of living in god's kingdom right with a heavenly perspective heavenly mind with a heavenly ambition versus uh, uh, earthly physical temporal uh, ambition because it's just it doesn't pay off you see what i'm saying it doesn't pay off so uh interesting right uh, this is, has nothing to do with my lesson today, actually. I just, this is stuff that I was studying last night. It's like, I got to bring this to the church. They're going to love it. <laughs> so, but, but isn't this interesting, though, right? Uh, Matthew uses the exact phrase, kingdom of God, only four times. Mark uses it 16 times. Luke uses it 32 times. John uses it only four times. Um, this kind of brings up the other kind of notion that we talked about last week a little bit, having to do with the what I call the vocabulary of the kingdom. Because it's not just the kingdom of heaven, it's also the kingdom, uh, kingdom of God, it's the kingdom of heaven. Whereas John doesn't even use the word kingdom but four times, but he uses another phrase that he really likes, which is eternal, what? Life, right? When he's talking about eternal life, he is talking about a quality of life that is consistent with the kingdom of God. So that's, that's kind of what's going on um, in John quite a bit. So uh, last week we looked at um, we looked at some of the foundations of the theology of the kingdom of God that I think are very important dealing with protolo. What is it? Proto. What is protology? That's right. Uh, protos. No, no, no. That's wrong. Right, Protoss uh, first, and then uh, uh, Lagos, and that's that comes. That's where we get protology, kind of like Theos, Lagos, theology. Protoss, Lagos means uh, you can almost read that right, even in a 
even in English, right? Just pretend that's a P right there at the very beginning, and that's an R. So (laughs) protos logos is protology, and that is the study of what? First things, because the word uh, protos means first. Okay, and so what we're talking about here is the kingdom of God in relationship to Adam. We talked about how creation itself is a kingdom act. It's a covenantal act of God. When God says, let there be, and it was, we call that a, a uh, sovereign, creative kingdom fiat, right? God just speaks it with all authority, and, he does, and then after each day, he says, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and then he makes man, and he says, and it's very good. That is, in a sense, you know, the high king of heaven sort of taking inventory of what he's done and delighting in what he's done. And then what we have is kind of like the great king, Right of heaven, and then there is kind of the lesser king that we des- we described as what sort of like the vice regent, right, or a vassal king, whatever you want to call it, and then this vassal king is commissioned by the great king to do what to uh, uh, take dominion, right? He takes dominion. That is also a kingly duty. Matter of fact, that that Hebrew word for dominion is actually associated with Israel's kings, especially Solomon, who is to take dominion as king. And so just very interesting, you know, kind of stuff uh, that goes on there. So uh, also we talked about the Sabbath, right? That the Sabbath is also uh, a symbol of enthronement, right? Uh, Something like that. You guys can... Think about that. The Sabbath is a symbol of enthronement. It's interesting because I've heard Muslims and others say, why is God taking a Sabbath after creation? Is he really tired? It says he refreshes himself and everything else. You know, why, what's wrong with him? Did he get tired in creating things? How can an omnipotent God need rest, which is a misunderstanding of the concept of rest, because as the psalmist declares, uh, you know, God's rest is a symbol of power, enthronement, exaltation. And so the psalmist says to the Lord, Yahweh, arise, O Lord, to your resting place. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a a symbol of power. It's not a symbol of weakness. It's quite the opposite, you see. So, um, okay, so uh, this is all kind of anticipating, you know, like kind of like the king, the kingdom and stuff like that. Let's see here. Okay, so any questions about anything? Anybody? Josh, you can chime in. Josh is a scholar. And he's, I've known Josh since 1998, and he's a professor at Talbot Seminary, and uh, he's taught uh, a lot of this stuff and a lot of other stuff. But don't hold back, because I know your mind is like, you're on overdrive. Right. I got a lot of this from Lad, yeah, which is very good. George, it's so critical that you read George Eldon Ladd. Is anybody reading Ladd in our church right now? Brian's reading Ladd. Anybody else reading Ladd? No, you need to get that. Uh, he's the guy. And everybody kind of based their work off of him. Shriner and everybody else. And even Shriner in his big book that he did, he actually gives all the credit to George Ladd for what he did uh, in that. But let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the anticipation of this kingdom, okay? Uh, the anticipation of the kingdom. Uh, and so here, 
we're, we, we've covered, we can stay in protology for the rest of our lives, you know what I mean? But we also know from Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, that uh, kings were promised to who? Kings were promised to who? Anybody with Genesis 17? Your mind's kind of working. What's going on in Genesis 17? Abraham, right? Well, not Melchizedek, that's Genesis 14, but Genesis 17, this is kind of God, you know, sort of uh, reaffirming his covenant promises to Abraham. And one of the things contained in the Abrahamic promises, as God says there to Abraham, kings will come from you. And so Abraham is given a kingdom promise. Uh, See, this this is the argument that I would make, is that the Bible works like two bookends, okay? And protology, so let's just go from Adam and the creation, okay, to the second Adam, right? And what? New creation. That's right. And so what was being set forth to Adam in the creation initially in protology was nothing less than the kingdom of God. That's what's being set forth before him in the covenant of great or covenant of works, which we can debate. You know, we can debate the covenantal stuff, but but I believe that God, you know, created Adam and gave him this covenant stipulation that if he were to obey, not only would he go beyond probation, the testing time, but then he would arrive in some sort of some sort of eschatological advancement. Everybody raise your hand if you need me to talk about that. But the symbol of that, the sacramental symbol of that, would be like the tree of life, right? This is the tree of life, okay? Don't mock my tree of life. (laughs) It's like a menorah tree of life, right? So if Adam would have passed probation, he would have been given the legal covenantal authority to take of the tree of life and participate in a higher form of life even than that of which he had in Eden. And so at some point, I think if Adam would have passed probation, right, he would have partaken of the tree of life, he would have given it to his wife, they would have lived forever, and I think they would have lived forever in a new heavens and a new earth which God had created and had imagined from the foundation of the world, right? And, And so it's like one theologian said, the scaffolding of the present creation would fall apart and it would give way to the new heavens and the new earth. Right? It was like this earth was never meant to be here forever. Never. Right? And so he failed. Right? And so what happens throughout the course of redemptive history is you have different high points and highlights, and then you begin to see how all of redemptive history is moving so that Adam will attain to the kingdom of God. Here's the problem Adam can't do it because <laughs> he already failed, so he's toast. Right? And so what you have now is a series of atoms that come after Adam. After, after Adam, then you get, you know, after the patriarchal period of time, then you, get, uh, uh, then you get the theocracy, which here you're thinking about Israel, right? Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter uh, 19. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6 you have another a staggering kingdom promise, which you correlate, for example, with Revelation chapter 
No, no. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. Okay? Israel becomes the next Adam. The only difference between Israel and Adam 1 and Israel is that Israel, in a sense, is a corporate. I don't even know if I spelled that right, but corporate Adam. In other words, it's a national identity now of the Son of God. And we know this by two. Who's at 19.6? Yeah, just read it for us real quick. Mm. 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 So not only is God formalizing a formal theocratic people, a people under God's rule, but he calls them a kingdom. What should strike us very curious about this at this point in time in redemptive history? What is the most obvious thing that vast majority of you guys are not even going to pick up on? But what is so incredible about him calling them a kingdom? They don't got a king. There ain't no king in Israel. So how can he be speaking about a kingdom without a king? You see, it's because God is operating on this system. And at times you have these flashes of, of eschatology that comes, you know, sort of into the picture um, to move the whole purpose of God. What, what is the, uh, what is the, um, what is that, that verse I take you guys sometimes? It's uh, in uh, Acts, uh, Stephen's sermon, Acts chapter 7, I think it's verse t- 17. Where, uh, where he says, as the time of the promise was approaching. See, so that promise that, that Stephen is talking about is the promise that was given to Abraham, the covenant of Abraham, right? That in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's essential. That's the promise, okay? We can talk about like the foundations of that initial promise, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. We can talk about that's rooted back into the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, Genesis 3.15. Okay, that's fine. But, but, but really, when Stephen says the time of the promise was approaching, right, it almost gives us this inclination that everything is moving along according to plan, according to promise, so everything in redemptive history, I mean, the captivity of Israel in Egypt, the captivity of Israel in Babylon, all of these things were, were situated around this covenant promise that God had made to Abraham that controls everything. You guys, the reason why we're in this room right now is because God's promise was brought to its fulfillment in Christ and that his sovereign timeline Right was advancing <laughs> through the rising and fallings of the kingdoms of the world and everything else that happened throughout redemptive history. So who's the next Adam of the scene? I would say David. David is the next one, 2 Samuel. Uh, we talked about 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, oh, oh, conversely, here's another reason why, if you're struggling with a theology of like, well, how's Israel and Adam? Right? We have another text. What is it? Exodus chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. We have Israel... Very explicitly there, being called God's son, right? And uh, that becomes important, you guys, because in Luke, let me just write this somewhere, I don't know. Luke uh, chapter 3, I think it's verse 38, Adam is called the son of God, right? And so, so this concept of sonship, Adam's son of God, 
Israel is called the son of God. David is identified as God's son. So we're, here, we're thinking here of 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're thinking of Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. Other places, when you think of the, about the Psalms, just follow me here. You're thinking about Psalm 89, Psalm 110, Psalm 132. All of those Psalms are all about David, the son of God, that God made a covenant with, that he promised him the kingdom, Right? But as great, have you guys ever just immersed yourself in the life of David? I have. I used to have a pastor that that was his thing. First, second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles. Like he just lived in the life of David. And he was like a David scholar, whatever you want to call it. Okay. It was wonderful. You know, he'd pull stuff that like, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, like (laughs) I don't study the life of David that deeply. You know what I mean? But as great and wonderful as the sweet psalmist of Israel was, He was yet another son of God who failed, who did not keep perfect obedience before God. Because what God requires, can I get rid of this? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Gail. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And just let me know if anything that, because what God required here, okay, is perfect Personal, exact, uh, is that how you spell exact? No, it's not. Almost. Exact, perfect, personal, exact, obedience, right? Watch this now. By a representative. Uh, my writing is so terrible. I told you Joseph Urban looked at my writing. He's like, that's terrible. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, man. I'm doing the best I can in this life. Okay. Uh, Perfect, personal, exact obedience by a representative. Watch this now. Head. Right? Um, And what's the whole purpose of this? It's in order to confer the kingdom of God. That's that's right. Uh, Let's just leave it at that. Confer the kingdom. Can you think of any passage in Scripture where the kingdom, in a sense, is conferred upon us? Think of anything that speaks like that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like granted to you, it's given to you, it's conferred upon you, bestowed on you. Oh no, that's yeah, close, but no, yeah. That's 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 almost the opposite, because there, as we're going to talk about next, in terms of anticipation, we're, the next movement we're going to talk about is the conflict of the kingdom. We'll get to that right after this. So, 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 yeah. Yeah. Where's that at? That's Luke. Uh, that's Luke twenty-two. Twenty-two. Twenty-nine through thirty. Okay, and remember that that language. What did, what is the word that Jesus used? Grant. Just as my father granted, and he had granted, and here. Ah, no, that's not it. I'll write it in English. But the word he uses here for grant is the word di. Uh, uh, how do you do this? Theke. And none of this makes sense in English. But that word that he that he the root of that word is. Diatheke, which means what? Uh, covenant. 
So Jesus used a covenantal term right in the context of the new covenant. And then he says, as my father covenanted to me a kingdom, so I covenant to you a kingdom. How? By bringing us into the new covenant. It's not just about, you know, the wine and and the bread. (laughs) It's the wine and the bread are symbols that we are in God's kingdom, you see? And that that kingdom has been legally, covenantally contracted to us by virtue of our union with Christ. Isn't that magnificent? Right? Any questions? Anybody? Anything? Yes, sir. Kind of going back to the Well, it's not an order as much as it is these are the main aspects of Adam's uh, requirements, right? This is what was required of Adam. Perfect. He can't deviate from it in any way. He has to fulfill every, every stipulation, every aspect of the covenant. And so what are we talking about here? We're talking about Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. That's, the, that's what covenant theologians call the covenant of works, which I subscribe to that. You know, people don't want to use the word covenant because the Hebrew word is not in Genesis, berit, covenant. But surely the theology, I think, is. So you're saying the expectations upon Adam are then conferred to Christ. Well, I'm saying that only through this will the kingdom be conferred to us. So, and this is what God wanted to do to Adam. Through his perfect Personal means he had to do it. And exact, he had to fulfill exactly what God wanted him to fulfill. Perfect obedience, all of that. As a representative head, which Adam was, then the kingdom would be conferred upon upon him and his people, namely Eve. Right? Already in Genesis and Protology, you have, you know, like, the, uh, the kingdom promise is given to Adam. The stipulations of the covenant are given to him, not to, not to uh, Eve. So it's not until Adam eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Then the text says their eyes were open. Because when the covenant representative sinned and broke the covenant, then all of humanity was damned. And conversely, had he fulfilled all of this, then all of humanity would have been saved or would have been conferred with the, the promise of the kingdom. I said this before, you know, Adam was created uh, good and right, upright, but he was not created glorified. There, there was an eschatological advancement that needed to take place, and I contended some time ago, that that eschatological advancement is represented by two things. Number one, the Sabbath rest of God. Okay, we know that based on Hebrews chapter 4. And the tree of life. That shows us that Adam had further to go. You see? People are like, I don't know. Perfect sense to me, I don't know. Correct. So this gets into this gets into another realm of systematic theology, which would have to do with like the decrees of God and the order of his decrees. Like what did he decree first? Did he decree the fall? Then he decreed the cross, and then he did 
you know, yes. <laughs> I don't know the mind of God. Yes, sir. Mm. That, that's, that's the question that uh, we often ask in here, right, is how much did they know, right? And I think, obviously, he understood the concept of a kingdom. Melchizedek, a few chapters ago, was himself a king. And so he understood that, that God was promising that fr- through him would, there would arise a mighty nation and that it would take the character of a kingdom. But I don't think he could have imagined beyond his wildest dreams what that would have looked like. But the essence, the kernel of the promise, we know that he had faith in. And he knew enough, he understood enough, he had enough cognitive knowledge of the promises of God along messianic lines that Hebrews chapter 11 can attribute to Abraham some sort of messianic faith. And of course you have tons of scripture on that, just that idea. Yes, sir. I think he's talking about uh, Genesis. I think he's talking about Genesis chapter twenty-two when um, um, when he received Isaac back as a type of the resurrection. I think that's what Jesus was talking about. I don't take the position that Jesus was talking about um, the angels that visited him, chapter eighteen, Genesis eighteen and nineteen. Uh, right before they destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Some people say, well, there, that's where he saw his day. No, I think the day there is more. Uh, Jesus was thinking more uh, along the lines of his resurrection day rather than than just like he saw some theophany of him. Uh, because uh, what's the book that says that he received, that he received um, Isaac back as a type? Where's that? Come on, all you. Is it Hebrews 11? Is it? Is it? Yeah, that's a big one, right? Because that gives us all the... Yeah, it's a verse 20. It says, by faith Abraham... No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, it's in verse 19. He considered that God was able to raise people from the dead, from which he also received him, i.e. Isaac, back as a type, a tupos, a type of... Of what? A type of the resurrection. Of what? Of Christ. And so, anyway, so that's definitely where I'm at with that. Uh, okay, let's talk, let's, uh, let's move. Um, in terms of the anticipation, what you have is this kind of, this kind of theology, okay? Uh, let me see, I don't want to skip anything that's... Uh, man, there's so much. We've we got to move. Okay, so... Let's talk about the conflict of the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, it comes in a certain character and a certain nature. And what I would say is there's conflict, and there's conflict in three areas. There's conflict uh, with uh, Satan. Okay. There's uh, conflict with Israel. We'll have to explain that. And there's conflict with the world. Okay. The, uh, his, his kingdom, that is, is in conflict with the world. Now, how, how do we imagine this? George Ladd says, The kingdom of God is essentially one of conflict and conquest over the kingdom of Satan. And uh, that's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, Satan's offer 
of the kingdom. Oh, so uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Okay, so uh, this is this reminds us of something uh, very profound. It also goes back also goes back to protology. When we did protology, man, how many weeks were we in protology? Russell, you probably know because you went through all the audio and everything. It's got to be like month, a couple months, right? Because everything goes back to protology. That's Genesis 1 through 3. Everything. Mention something, and someone in here <laughs> will find the, the, the correspondence to protology. Right? Anything. Think of anything. Um, pretty much. Yeah, I think so. I'm like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, um, everything goes back to protology, I think, in the Bible. It can all go back to those foundational chapters in Scripture. Um, and same thing here. Uh, when you have the temptation of Christ, what do we have here? See, look with me, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, you know, you have all these things. There's three temptations that happen. You know, Satan tells Christ, you know, um, you're hungry, you know, feed yourself, right? Uh, you know, command these stones that come become bread. And then what does he do? He quotes in verse 4, he quotes out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, right? Very interesting here what's going on here. Uh, he's quoting some Deuteronomic passage. And what I would go so far as to say, and we don't have time to get into this, but this is a perfect proof text of how Jesus in, envisioned himself as the new Israel or the true Israel of God. Okay, he saw himself as withstanding the temptations that Israel themselves failed to go through. Okay, all of that. And he is the one that, you know, the Shema of Israel, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, right? And you shall obey the Lord your God, right? It's like Jesus saw himself as the only one that could obey the Shema of Israel. But anyway, um, and then the other one is, okay, so, you know, command the stones that they become bread, feed yourself, right? So that's the way out of the covenant uh, of, of works that, that, that he had to perform, the covenant of redemption, uh, which basically means that the son had to perfectly obey the father just like Adam did. And then also, you know, uh, look at what he says here. He says, you know, uh, he tells him, you know, took him up to the high pinnacle of the temple and he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. So here he's calling for suicide, right? Don't go under the wrath of God. Don't go to the cross. Don't go under judgment. You know, seek a way out. The quickest way out is for you to cast yourself down and just end it now. You know what I mean? Uh, amazing, right? And then what does he quote next? He quotes, uh, what's that verse he's quoting there? Verse 6. Psalm 91, right? And in Psalm 91, if I'm not mistaken, uh, if somebody reads that, there, the psalmist is talking about treading underfoot the serpents. Interesting. And then, it says in verse 8, he took him to a very high mountain. Uh, here's a question for you guys. Is that a coincidence there? Yeah. The Hebrew har is a mountain, right? It's where the word... Harmageddon comes from, right? The mountain of the Lord. Isaiah says, I think it's in Isaiah 2, that the mountain of the Lord will cascade above all the other mountains of the earth. And in that context, it's explicitly talking about how that when the mountain of the Lord arises, it will destroy everything else. And it's just like it's like envisioning the ultimate vindication and victory of God over all the world. And how does he depict it? He depicts it as Harmageddon, 
It's like a final global conflict through which and from which will arise God's high and holy mountain, and no one will be able to overcome the mountain of God. And I think in a diabolical, anti-Lord fashion, as presenting himself as he did in the garden as the anti-Lord, the anti-Lord of the covenant, he is persuading Jesus away from the mountain of God. He takes him to his own mountain. And what was presented to Jesus in the covenant of redemption and what was presented to Adam in terms of his king, kingdom ambitions, Satan, as the anti-Lord, is trying to present him with an alternative. This is the, the, Satan is brilliant, okay? This, is, this was a brilliant temptation on his behalf. It was diabolical. It was irrational. It was insane. It would never have worked. Because I believe in the impeccability of Christ that he could not sin. Uh, He could not sin, right? Even though he was tempted, I don't believe he could sin. And so Satan, being a a self-destructive, you know, diabolical agent that he is, he's on a, he's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a vain, it's a futile errand here. And he says, I will give you, uh, no, no, verse eight, the devil took him a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. You see, this is what is at stake in redemptive history. Kingdom and glory. Okay? And so Jesus, or Satan knows the best thing he can tempt Jesus with is some sort of alternative what he's after anyway. A kingdom with glory. You see? And he says, I'll give you all of this. Yes, sir? Do you think that has any correspondence to the Garden of Eden when he took him upon this mountain and tempted him there? With Eden being on a mountain as well? It's very good. Wow, that's good, yeah. Where does it say that Eden was on a mountain? Somewhere in Ezekiel. <laughs> I was hoping you'd have it. Forget the reference on it. There, it is in Ezekiel somewhere. Ezekiel 38 or something, right? Uh, that uh, Eden was on a mountain. What's that? Jordan? It w- the Garden of Eden. Yes, sir. The Garden of Eden, which is on the mountain of the Lord. It's in Ezekiel somewhere. And again, it just shows you that from the beginning, God conceives of everything through this mountain theme. And so there is Mount Moriah, there is Mount Zion, there is Mount Sinai, there is Mount Calvary, there is the mountain of the Lord. There's, you see what I'm saying? It's just incredible, right? This mountain theology. You guys need to go research this, I'm telling you. Um, in terms of the kingdom of God and its conflict, he comes and immediately does conflict with the serpent. Look at verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And so the devil leaves. And, and, and there's, another, there's another text, it's in Luke, Luke 4, where it says, until an opportune time. Right? Where it's almost like, the devil would tempt him again later some other, po- some other point, right? Uh, and, and maybe, I don't have time for this. Maybe in Luke, there is a similar. Yeah. Hmm. 
Which brings up another issue, right? That it shows you the contrast of Adam. This is what Adam should have done. He should have immediately expelled the serpent from the garden, from the mountain of God. Adam, Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. Uh, this is Jesus here as prophet, priest, and king. And as a prophet, right, almost like, like, like we talked about the very, our last week, we talked about how Eden is like a temple, a sanctuary to God, and that, that one of the commissions of Adam was that he would guard the, the garden, right? It said that he had to guard it, that he had to tend it, right? That he had to work the garden. And that same Hebrew word for guard or tend, uh, the Hebrew word shamar, it is used in Numbers 3 and in other places uh, in association with the priests at the temple, at the tabernacle, who, according to Numbers chapter 3, who were to guard the temple, the tabernacle of God, and if an intruder, this is Numbers chapter 3, I think it's verses 8 and 9, if an intruder were to transgress the gate of the tabernacle, the priests were to put him to death. (laughs) So it's like, Jesus is embodying everything that Adam did not do. Adam should have slayed the dragon right there. And he didn't do it. And Jesus does do it, right? He crushes the head of the serpent. Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, he moves us beyond conflict with the serpent. So that conflict is over. Praise God. Can you imagine a world without Satan? Incredible. The paradise. Any questions? Yes, sir. It's called what now? Priest judge. Priest judge. Mm. That's the name of the album? Of course it is. He's a Westminster guy, so. Yeah, he's smart. Uh, Timothy Brindle is really smart. <coughs> yeah, anyway. Uh, huh? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Hey, the Bible talks about learning and songs. Uh, let's see here. So what's going on here is that, like in Matthew chapter, turn to Matthew 8. Because included in his conflict with Satan, of course, is demons, right? Which here we're talking about, you know, the cosmic powers, right? That the rulers, the authorities and high places, those kinds of things, the principalities and powers, right, that Jesus is conquering and and, and triumph. Somebody read verse 29. Go ahead, Landon. And behold, they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Have you come come here to torment us before the time? Mm. Wow. What do these demons know that people didn't know? No, no, really think about that. What, What are they saying here, here, here? Demons are evil, diabolical, but one thing they're not is that they're not stupid in the sense of they're not ignorant, right? They're very smart. Satan is very smart. He was listening, apparently. He really understood the covenant with Adam. He had some sort of knowledge of it. That's why he was able to tempt him in the way that he did. These demons have some sort of knowledge of eschatology. almost trying to get Jesus almost like in a contradiction, right? 
you're bringing judgment before the time? How's that possible? We all know that this judgment is at the end. But you're judging us before the time. (laughs) So what are they ignorant of? What kind of eschatology are they ignorant of? Realized eschatology. In other words, that as, let's say this is the advent. This is, let's say this is, we talked about this again, but I want you to be able to do this. Let's say that this is the advent of Christ, right? And let's say the redemptive history, right? So at the advent of Christ, you have, remember guys, that we mentioned like coming down, it should be straight down, but you have this sort of intrusion into the present age from the age to come. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like the realm above and the realm below. You have the Sioux, Eternal. I tell you what, I mean, you guys learn this language. It's amazing. You guys do this at ladies' study and men's study. Uh, supernal, and then here you have the earthly realm, whatever you want to call it. Okay, And at this critical juncture, the advent of Jesus, what you have is that this heavenly realm, this age to come. Somebody turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verse, uh, I think it's verse 8. Hebrews chapter 9, the age to come and the uh, present age is that there's some sort of convergence, there's some sort of intrusion that's going on here, right? It's like the heavenly realms are breaking into the present age. What does Hebrews say? What about, somebody have that there? You have it? Is it 9 8? That's a good verse. It's not the one I wanted, but that's a good one. It's verse 11. But when Christ appeared, and this is, his, this is the description that's given to him, as a high priest of what? Of the good things to come. And that, the good things to come, correlate that. Go back to chapter 6, right here in this letter, in this book. Uh, uh, this is an interesting. Uh, this is an interesting passage because it's talking about apostates and how close somebody can actually come to being participating in the kingdom, but not being in the kingdom. This is the the, the most severe warning in Hebrews. One, well, one of them it says in verse five. One of the things that these apostates do. Look at verse five. They tasted the good word of God. Watch this now. And the powers of the age to come. So Jesus and the good things to come and the powers of the age to come. I would say those are the same things in the sense that we're speaking about a heavenly reality that was brought into the present age through Christ, through the spirit, through, you know, those kinds of things. Right. And that's evidence. And so these demons in Matthew eight twenty nine, they are detecting that there has been some sort of dis- disruption. Right? There's some sort of realized eschatology. It's like the end is here. You know, and so Hebrews says it in many places. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, it says that, you know, that this is the, uh, what does it say there? That the, this is the consummation of the ages. That the new covenant has ushered in the consummation of the ages. Uh, Paul says, I have this somewhere here. Uh, 
Paul says in another place, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says that he describes himself and the church, he describes Christians as those upon whom the end of the ages has come. That's how serious the realized eschatology was for the biblical authors. Now, now it's not so realized that they forget about future eschatology. Be careful there, because liberals have made that mistake. Right, Josh? There's been liberals. <laughs> there's been, not you, I'm saying liberals, not you. Man, come on. <laughs> but there has been liberals who have taken the language and uh, talk about George Ladd. Uh, George Ladd, uh, he shows how there was a scholar in the early 20th century, mid-20th century, by the name of C.H. Dodd, who they think created the term realized eschatology. But there are some liberals contemporary to him that went so far with realized eschatology is that they, they took no account of future eschatology. Almost they made it seem like future eschatology was not even important anymore. That is not balance, and that's not what the Bible gives us, right? Um, in a sense, but it's not even that. It's more of a neglect of future eschatology. It's not. It's almost like it's not important. You know what I mean? Uh, so it gets kind of overlooked. You become imbalanced. It's all about the realist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's, because uh, eschatology is always conceived of in two ways, right? There's personal eschatology, and then there's cosmic eschatology, right? Personal eschatology is something that happens to you, like for example, upon death, right? Second, Second Corinthians, uh, what is it, five eight? You know, absent from the body. We want to talk about eschatology. <laughs> absent from the body, present with the Lord. There's no greater eschatology than that. You know, you'll find out. And then there's cosmic eschatology, right? When like it says, you know, the, the world will be rolled up like a scroll, you know, like you know, Jesus will come, like he says in Matthew, right? He says he's, he's going to come in the, pow- in, in the clouds with great glory and power, right? So that's a definitely talking about the parousia, the second coming of Christ, where he will come in cataclysmic judgment on earth. Uh, so, yeah, if, if you're not careful, then you can also eschatologically make the mistake that that the, the present eschatology that we are experiencing is, is, is kind of like, you know, going to develop into some sort of heaven on earth now, right? And I think that's what you're talking about, right, Josh, with mission. It kind of it it undermines the mission of the church that through a suffering church, the Great Commission is supposed to be expanded and the glory of God is to be taken to the ends of the earth now, you see what I'm saying? We're not like waiting for some sort of utopian Christianity uh, that will never come. You know what I mean? Yes, ma'am. Earthly, uh, present age. You're welcome. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, what are we talking? Oh, how about Israel? So we know, and we can demonstrate many, many things here. Man, we're so out of time. Brian, where's he at? He doesn't mind. Where we <laughs> uh, Israel, uh, the world. Uh, so I would say like with Israel, you know, I think of one passage, you know, that comes to mind. And, you know, when Jesus says, you know, that, that, that they will come from the east and from the west and the Gentiles will come from the furthest corners of the earth and they will recline at the table with Abraham. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. 
Who are the sons of the kingdom? The Jews. The Jewish people, ethnic Israel, right? In a sense, Jesus came, was in direct conflict with, 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 with who ethnic Israel was at the time. Uh, and, and, and in a sense, he reconstitutes the Israel of God to be definitional on the basis of him, right? That's why Paul now can say in Philippians chapter 3, we are the true circumcision. We are the Israel of God. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 6, not all Israel is Israel, you see? Um, You know, that's why, like, when we go to, who's going to Israel? Okay, a couple of you guys. You'll see when we get to the Western Wall, if you try to engage an ultra-Orthodox Jew, they don't like you, <laughs> especially if you're Christian. I tried to witness to one uh, years back, and it didn't work out very good. <laughs> they, they don't like Gentiles. They don't like, especially not Christians. They are completely antagonistic against Christianity. They hate Christianity. You know what I mean? Their literature and, and, and their rabbinical writings are full of great blasphemies against Christ, unutterable blasphemies against Christ. They don't like Christ, okay? Uh, and so uh, Christ came and was in direct conflict with the aristocrats of his time, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and ultimately the high priest, symbolized there by Caiaphas and all of that. And he told them, remember when, when they, are you the Christ, right? And Jesus says, you have said it yourself. They tore their robes and they said, we've heard the blasphemy. Crucify him, right? And right there he tells them, you know, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, great glory and power, right? All of that. So he's saying that he, when he returns, you know, whatever's left of ethnic Israel as a, as a, as a nation, they will experience the wrath of God like Paul says in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, you know, when he says there, uh, I think it's in verse 10, where he says, you know, that the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You know what I mean? They're like, they're filling up the wrath of God in their rejection of their own Messiah. Anyway, we can go on and on. And then obviously there's a conflict with the world. We're out of time. No time for the world. <laughs> I'm so out of time. <laughs>